Welcome to the Sea Trade Maritime Podcast for our latest episode of Maritime in Minutes. You're listening to Marcus Hand, editor of Sea Trade Maritime News, and Gary Howard, Europe editor of Sea Trade Maritime News. Maritime in Minutes is our monthly podcast where we pick out some of the most topical news stories from the world of maritime on Sea Trade Maritime News. And today we're covering the month of October 2022. October has seen quite a mix of stories, with maritime proving as usual, you should expect the unexpected. So Gary, why don't you kick us off? Thanks Marcus and hello listeners. Let's start October with a nice big dual fuel ship order. If it wasn't already clear which future fuel Maersk thinks will be the best for its fleet, the group has ordered another six 17,000 TEU container ships from Hyundai Heavy Industries. ABS was keen to promote the fact that it will class the vessels, and MAN were pretty chuffed to secure the main engines for that order as well. And then just before we start recording, Costco announced on the last day of October that its subsidiary Orient Overseas International Limited was dropping $2.88 billion on a dozen 24,000 TEU methanol fueled container ships, Dalian Costco KHI and Nantong KHI. Always interesting to see the lines drawing their own lines when it comes to green fuels, especially when we see a pair of large owners go one way, while we've already seen others like CMA, CGM committing to LNG. If you're wondering what all the fuss is about with methanol, have a listen to our podcast episode from the 22nd of September this year on methanol as a green fuel for shipping. Marcus, what have you got? Well, I'm going to stay with fuels, but definitely not of the alternative variety, it must be said. The first week of October saw the return of the world's largest bunkering conference, SIPCON in Singapore. It was the first time it's been held in person since 2018 as a biannual event. Just a quick shout out to our colleagues from Informer Markets office in Singapore for putting together an excellent event that was hugely well attended. Now, while we spend an awful lot of time reporting on future fuels and alternative fuels such as methanol, the reality is that to date these make up a tiny portion of the fuels market. What might surprise listeners, though, now we're nearly three years into IMO 2020 and the 0.5% sulfur cap regulation, is just how much high sulfur, heavy fuel oil, or HFO, continues to be sold and used by the industry. By fitting exhaust gas cleaning systems, better known as scrubbers, ship owners and operators can continue to use HFO. With what one speaker at Sipcon described as crazy price spreads between HFO and very low sulfur fuel oil, in the regions of $300 per tonne in Singapore at the time of SIBCON, both demand for HFO and scrubber installations have been on the rise. I was surprised to learn, though, that HFO in recent months has accounted for nearly 30% of all bunkers sold in Singapore, which is the world's largest bunkering port, up from 25%, which is still a significant number. And this is just because the economic benefits are such for a vessel that has a scrubber fitted. So anyone who thought the market for high sulfur fuel oil would be dead post IMO 2020 has proven sorely mistaken. Now, Gary, maybe you can talk about something non-fuel related for week two. Yeah, I think it's wise to keep fuel well away from this next story, or stories, should I say, as I've been keeping up with the sort of heated exchanges around the port worker strikes at the UK's port of Liverpool. Strikes have affected container operations at the port and are centred around pay dispute, as you might expect, with workers and their union rejecting a series of below-inflation pay offers, 
that sort of depends on which measure of inflation you take into account. I'm sure Peel Ports doesn't think it's below inflation, but anyway, there's been quite a war of words over this. The union has accused Peel Ports of untrustworthy behaviour after a deal was struck between the two parties at the negotiating table, and then allegedly it was struck down by uh, Peel Ports board. Peel Ports was also accused of bullying tactics after it issued 132 redundancy notices to workers as the dispute rolled on. The union has said that these redundancies were part of measures that were proposed in the past and already, you know, turned down and rejected. So uh, who knows what's going on there. Combined with the strikes going on at Felixstowe, the Liverpool destruction has unsettled UK container traffic, which from the data appears to just about manage to return to normal in time for another series of strikes to begin. For its part, Peelport says it made an improved 11% pay offer which it claims is the highest offered by any UK ports group at the time a week or so ago. The company even went so far as to post the full details of the pay offer on its website, including a breakdown by roles at the port and the component pieces of the increase that the offer is. The Liverpool strikes ran initially from October 11 to 17, and then the current strikes are two weeks from October 24. In general, in the UK, strikes are becoming much more common as industries and the government struggle to get to grips with rising inflation, but very much affecting ports and then also on the logistics chain, train strikes as well. Incredibly common at the moment. And then postal strikes as well, just to add on top of that. Have you got a a good news story for us after that one, Marcus? Um, I won't exactly call it good news, but um, it's not things being on strike. I'm going to look at the container market. And just actually on that good news point, before I should preface what I'm going to say here and point out that although I'm going to talk about what's happening forward in the container market, it's worth noting the lines in Q3 are still going to report and are reporting huge profits. As with the last few months, the container story is one that we've covered across October and I've chosen to cover it in week two of this podcast simply because there were a couple of significant stories in that week. HSBC Global Research, which shocked the market with a doom-laden report on the sector at the start of September, predicting an 80% drop in profitability by 2023-24, realised it in fact had been too optimistic, as spot rates plunged even more sharply than it had expected. In a research note entitled Fast and Furious, HSBC noted spot rates reported by the Shanghai Containerized Freight Index had fallen by 51% since the end of July, a decline of 7.5% per week. As a result, it brought forward its forecast of a trough in rates to mid-2023 from 2024 previously. Meanwhile, in a separate story, MSC, the world's largest container line, which rarely comments on the markets, saw its CEO Soren Toff take to social media to say that the market was now quote-unquote normalising and there would no doubt be some difficult quarters ahead. You can read these stories and more on Sea Trade Maritime News. There are links in the show notes. And also check out a recent episode of the Sea Trade Maritime podcast with Adam Kent, Managing Director of Maritime Strategies International, commenting on the outlook not just for containers but also the dry bulk and tanker sectors. Go 
Gary, over to you for week three, and I think we're headed back to sort of fuel and emissions, aren't we? Absolutely. This time on the regulatory side, the industry firmly has its eyes set on CII and EEXI coming up in January 2023, but regional regulations continue to rumble on in the background as well. The fuel EU regulation is making its way through the numerous steps of the EU's bureaucracy. The latest milestone in week three was its passing through the European Parliament, which took the opportunity to propose an increase in the scope of emission cuts within the regulation. Essentially, there's a series of target reductions attached to a deadline. The Parliament proposed a 2% greenhouse gas intensity reduction target for 2025, when previously there was no 2025 target. And then it's also proposed 20% by 2035 and 80% by 2050, which are both tighter than the previous regulations although NGOs have been quick to point out that that 80% reduction by 2050 does not add up to net zero emissions by 2050. So some questions to be answered there. This is definitely one to keep an eye on as the regulation matures and comes closer to entering into force. Perhaps time to start lining up your regulatory solutions, whether in-house or external, if you're trading into or out of the EU. The rules are set to apply 100% to journeys within the EU and 50% to voyages that just start or end within the block. Just a quick one there. More labour action from you, I think, Marcus? Yes, indeed. Although you said that was a quick one, it's also a very complex one and one that people really need to keep an eye on what is going to happen with this as these rules do seem to get more and more complex and more and more regional as well. Yes, indeed. I'm coming back to labour action. Port strikes, but this time in South Africa. Transnet, which operates both major ports and South Africa's freight rail network, in week three of the month, reached agreement for a new pay deal with the largest of two unions that have been on strike. This was the United Transport of Allied Trade Union. And that strike had seen them declare force majeure on its port operations. What struck me about this story, though, was whether the strike could have been avoided if the employer had started from a more reasonable position. Transnet's original offer for three years equated to just 1.5% pay increase per annum. Now, that's well below inflation by any measure in pretty much any country right now. As the strike drew nearer, this was increased to 3%, then during the strike to 4.5%, and finally to 6% with the involvement of government mediation. Surely a better approach would have been to put a more reasonable offer in the first place that might have avoided strike action, which was costly not only to Transnet, but to a huge swathe of South African businesses and the economy in general. So it's just food for thought, really, on how labour regulations are going to be handled in this sort of high inflation era that we're seeing across the globe. Gary, on to you for week four and another ongoing story. Ongoing indeed, and one of those stories that you sort of write with a heavy heart. I've been following the Black Sea Grain Initiative since its inception and doing my best on Sea Trade Maritime News to promote its various milestones over the past few months that it's been in operation. The initiative is an agreement brokered by Turkey and the UN to enable the export of Ukraine's grains and foodstuffs through its seaports, which are essentially blocked by the ongoing war with Russia. Before this came in, there were some exports through the river ports, but really quite insignificant compared to the volumes that you can get on a decent-sized ocean-going dry bulk ship. Ukraine, Russia, Turkey and the UN inspect and approve ships to enter the Black Sea, to load their grains and then get back out of the Black Sea safely without getting shot to pieces or whatever else might happen. Each of the nations involved coordinate with their militaries as well, just to ensure that the militaries know which ships have been approved and are safe on a 
humanitarian corridor that's been established in the sea, much like the ones we've seen on land for getting uh, evacuees out of cities under siege. The initiative led to a real acceleration in Ukraine's grain exports. The country is a major global exporter of wheat and corn. I used to cover grains and oil seeds for another publication. I think off the top of my head, Ukraine hovers around third largest for wheat, but that obviously changes year on year depending on weather conditions during planting, growing and harvesting, all the things you need to grow a crop. But Ukraine's removal from the world market brought much higher food prices and has had a particular impact on developing and less developed countries. This is something that the UN highlighted in a report it published mid to late October. Now, the reason for that publication was the initiative was already on pretty shaky ground as it came up for renewal in late November. But at the end of October, Russia announced it was suspending its involvement in the deal in response to drone attacks on the Russian Black Sea fleet, I think at Sevastopol. This is really significant. It's been running for a few months and some nine and a half million tonnes. Last time I checked the figures, I suspect that's probably creeping very close to the 10 million tonne barrier has been exported under this programme, which, as you can imagine, is a very significant amount of food for the world. It's also food that needs to get out to the world before the other harvests start coming in and putting pressure on storage within the country. It's not yet clear how Russia's withdrawal will affect operations. I think there's a bit of a a scramble to try and put together a a plan that allows the grain to keep flowing beyond the ships that have already been approved. But we'll keep you updated on Sea Trade Maritime News as the updates come out of the Joint Coordination Centre. Perhaps it's a bit optimistic as hostilities heighten in the Ukraine war that they'll manage to find a way to keep those grains flowing, but I personally hope that they do. Yeah, a little bit of a down on that one. Uh, <laughs> what have you got to uh, to end October for us, Marcus? Yes, indeed. I agree with you. Hopefully they can find a way to keep those grains flowing. I have actually tried to end this month's maritime, and it's on a positive note. And that positive note is the tanker market. True to the form of the cyclical nature of shipping, as some markets head downwards, tankers, which have endured a torrid couple of years... Our New York correspondent Barry Parker noted in a story the other day, as the cliche goes, the tanker sector is on fire, and that charter hires had reached stratospheric levels on the back of longer voyages for crude oil and refined products, with brokers potent pegging one-year VLCC charters of $47,000 per day, uh, that's for charters to the end of 2023, and for a two-year charter to the end of 2024 pegged at $39,000 per day. It's pretty easy to see what Barry's referring to here because those are, you know, those are really nice earnings if you're looking at that sort of length of period. And I'm sort of going to cheat slightly here and go for a story that has actually appeared today, the 1st of November, and look at the LNG carrier market, which is going even more bananas than the crude tanker market. Correspondent Paul Barlow reported that LNG carrier spot rates have smashed all previous records hitting an amazing half a million dollars a day ahead of the European winter as countries source alternatives to Russian natural gas. Quite a phenomenal number. If you want to know more, as with all the other stories mentioned in this podcast, the links are in the show notes. Or just head over to ctrade-maritime.com to read all of these and the latest in maritime news. That's all we have time for in this latest episode of Maritime in Minutes. Thank you for listening. Make sure you subscribe on the app of your choice to never miss an episode. Until the next episode of the Sea Trade Maritime Podcast, stay safe. Mm-hmm.